Yo, what up, everybody? Grady Show on Dirt coming to you live from the TV studios. I'm your host, Quentin. Listen, it is October. October baseball, October Halloween. October is, is the best month of the year. Not because I was born on October 8th or that I share a birthday with R.L. Stein, Matt Damon, and Chevy Chase. Those things are neither here nor there. I just turned 37 year old. My back hurts and I have acid reflux all the time. Those things never leave me, okay? But nonetheless, October is a great month, right? We do have some baseball going on right now. The World Series is tied one game to one, right? It's cool. Uh, game three is playing right now, and I don't know who's winning. And you just, right when when fall comes, when October gets here, and you feel the cool air, isn't it just the best, man? Like, it's you can sit outside, you can get your favorite beer, and just like you know, get a fire pit or just start a bonfire or just start a fire, right? And just sort of relax, man. It's the best thing ever, right? Like I bought a Zippo lighter the other day and all I want to do is start a fire. Listen, like, dude, so when I was a kid, I always, always had a Zippo lighter in my pocket. I had a Zippo lighter and I had a butterfly knife. Those were my things that I had when I was growing up, right? So I had when I had my Charlotte Hornets three-quarter zip and it had the front pocket in the winter months, October comes around, butterfly knife, Zippo lighter, right? And that's what we used to do, man. So Spencer's, right? Do you remember when Spencer's back in the day at the mall, when you would go to the mall, you would go to the skating rink and go to the mall and like try to get girls like in fifth and sixth, seventh grade, 12th grade? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. No, kidding. No, I would go to the mall though, but like when I was in junior high, right? And Spencer's, dude, Spencer's was the place to go because they had everything you want. Like, they have black lights. They have black light posters with marijuana leaves on them, right? Like, I had never smoked weed, like, in 6th and 7th grade, but I watched Half Bacon. I really wanted to, right? Thurgood Jenkins, my man, Mr. Nice Guy. And I did actually end up trying marijuana. I was addicted for a long time. I'm just joking. <laughs> you can't get addicted to weed. You can get addicted to chili cheese Fritos, though. <laughs> And so, but Spencer's though, man, holy crap. Like I said, dude, and then when Halloween would come around, they had Halloween mask. Like it was just a cool store. You could get a chain wallet, right? And if you were in junior high and didn't have a pair of Jinkos and a chain wallet, like your life was going nowhere, right? Like I peaked, my life peaked in seventh grade when I had Jinkos and a chain wallet, right? It's just been downhill from there. But it's going up now because I do have a Dragon Ball Z chain, a Dragon Ball Z chain wallet. And I bought another fucking Zippo, man. And all I do is walk around the house and I like light it. And I just want to burn stuff, right? So that's what's good because I have a fire pit now. And, you know, we're installing a fence in the backyard in a couple weeks, like a privacy fence. So people can't judge how much alcohol I drink. And it's going to be fun, dude. And that's just what the fall is about. But like I remember like when I was a kid, when when the fall season in October 1st hit, it was all about teeping houses. That's all we did all October every year. It's like we just teepee people, man. Like we were like it was all about vandalism. Like the second that cool air came through, it like titillated my body. And all I had flowing through my veins was the blood of a vandal. And all we did was teepee. Now we wouldn't. Oh, shit. Now we would knock over some mailboxes, too. So if you listen to this and you've had a mailbox knocked over or I've knocked over your mailbox and you're personally hurt by that, well, kiss my ass <laughs> because if you've never listen, I'm going to tell you this right now. If you have never knocked over a mailbox, go do it. Listen, some people spend their money and they go bungee jumping or skydiving 
or zip lining. Listen, I spent the first half of my life in a tr- my first few years, not my first half. I spent the first few years of my life in a trailer, right? When you when you grow up and live in a trailer, you're just a different sort of breed, right? Like I pee in the front yard still. I've talked about this numerous times. You know I'm passionate about the freedom of urinating in the front yard, of the front yard urination, right? That's just how things go. And the joys of just a mailbox, like I'm I'm scared of heights, right? So I'm not going to do any of like the risky stuff I just said. This isn't point break and I'm not Johnny Utah. But if you want the thrill of bungee jumping, if you want the thrill of skydiving, of zip lining, if you want the thrill of cocaine or methamphetamine, go out, swipe a couple cinder blocks from a construction site, get you a couple 40 ounces of high life or some bush tall boys, and go smash a mailbox. Don't hit him with a baseball bat. Get you a big cinder block and just throw it out at the mailbox and watch the mailbox explode. Listen, we used to steal shopping carts from Toys R Us because our mall was in the country. I've talked about this on an episode before. We used to throw shopping carts out of a van into mailboxes. And I'm telling you this, when you throw a cinder block or a shopping cart, in this case, at a mailbox and it explodes... The, the energy and the vigor that runs through your body, it's so euphoric. It's like doing coke, meth, and crack at the same time. It's It has to be better than jumping out of an airplane, right? I'm telling you, it's the greatest thing ever. So I would smash mailboxes. They say that's a felony offense. So with that being said, those statements are for entertainment purposes only. <laughs> right, that's what you have to say. You could say anything you want on the radio if you just say they're for entertainment purposes later, Right. Um, it's the best thing ever. It's in the Geneva Convention, okay? But listen, when it came to teeping, dude, it was just a jam. Like, my mom started taking us teeping in grade school, and I would come to grade school and tell my friends that my mom took me teeping last night. Nobody would believe me, but I swear to God, it's the God honest truth. I've been teeping since third grade, dude, and that's just what we would do. We would get together as a family. We would invite friends. You know, there were no... There was no TGIF. There was no game night at my house. There was none of that sort of stuff. It was just about like, hey, listen, let's go teepee someone. Who are we getting, right? And one particular, listen, one of the best times ever that I've been teepeeing, listen, one of my buddies, Alan, well, really, he was like a family friend. So he was like my mom's age, right? And But he was a family friend, right? So we went to go teepee Alan one night. So he was out at a Halloween party, and he left his trailer unmanned. Right. So we were like, yo, we're just going to go buy like 100 rolls of toilet paper and do this. So we all pile in my mom's grand PGT. Right. It's, it's me, my mom, my sister. We all invite a bunch of friends. We got like 12 people in a Grand Prix. You know, we're sitting like people are laying across bodies in the back seat, feet sticking out the window. We, we didn't wear seat belts back then. Right. That's just the way it was. And so we got all this toilet paper and we go to TP Allen and it's just it's a stealthy mission. Right. We're. You know, we're loaded up in the Grand Prix GT. We're um, we're listening to Aerosmith, you know, the Get a Grip cassette, right? This is in the cassette days. We were listening to Living on the Edge, and we felt, we felt like we were living on the edge, man. Such a rebel, you know, to stay up past your bedtime and go teepee somebody. It's one of the greatest things in the world, you know? So we're on our way to go teepee, and of course, of course, I got my butterfly knife and my Zippo on me because you never know. If you're going to have to shank someone or light something on fire, right? Those are two things that could happen. That could happen anytime in the world, right? So we're going, right? My mom, she's smoking her Marlboro lights up front. 
I'm doing my best to inhale the secondhand smoke because all I wanted to do smoke cigarettes. My mom would let me, but she would she would let me buy them. She my mom had a friend at the gas station, and when I was 14, she would let me drive her car and go buy cigarettes and come back. But I couldn't smoke any of them. But I would breathe the nicotine secondhand smoke to try to catch a contact buzz from the nicotine, right? Because I had smoked a cigarette before, and I knew you could get buzzed off of it. And so on the way to TP, of course, like. I'm getting a secondhand smoke, man, and I'm getting wired, dude. Like, this scene in the car is like the beginning of Predator when Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jesse the Body Ventura and everybody's in the helicopter, right, and they're heading to the jungle because they're going to go, like, rescue somebody. They're in the jungle, and they're listening to, like, Tutti Fruity, Little Richard, and, you know, they're chewing Red Man and smoking cigars and shit. Like, that's the way this was, man. So we're in the car. We're getting our mind right on the way to TP, man. It was like... Just like the helicopter scene in Predator. And I'm getting yoked, bro. So we get there. Park about a block away. Because we don't want no one to see us. You can't be tied to a vehicle. Because the cops come, run. That's There's no ifs, ands, buts about it, right? Save yourself. Don't give names. You give names, you get your ass kicked, okay? So we park about a block up, man. We start unloading the trunk, right? When I say 100 rolls, I'm not exaggerating. It's 100 minimum because we care about our craft, okay? So we walk up to the house. The trailer's empty. Now, there's a trailer next door. Nobody's outside, though. We see lights on inside, but we go for it, right? We don't have any beef with them. We're just TP and Allen's house now. You know, it was an interesting sight because you knew it was a well-kept trailer because there was a weight bench, a recliner, and a filing cabinet out front, right? It sort of looked like he was maybe moving or had been evicted, but that's not the case, right? When you have a trailer, like I said, you can do things that people without a trailer just can't do, right? If you live in a trailer, yes, you can have a weight bench and a reclining chair in your front yard. You can leave your Christmas lights up all year round. You can most definitely pee in the front yard. You could have a snake pit in the front yard. You could just do anything, right? You could have a stack of tires in the front yard and a car on jack stands with no wheels. There's no HOA when you have a trailer. If you live in a trailer, it's like Harley riders that know each other and they like wave at each other, right? And so that's so that's where it gets tricky, right? So we start TP in this house and we're putting work in, dude. We, you know, he's got a little front porch, so we're wrapping up the front porch. We're throwing up in the trees. And I'm throwing as high as I can in the trees. I'm gonna need Tommy John surgery after this. I feel like Doug fucking flutie. I'm just throwing as high as I can because I'm testing myself, right? Like when you're when you're TPing, you know, when you're just out in the field like that, it's it's you versus you. Do you understand what I'm saying? And it's a competition. And you have got to throw that roll of toilet paper high as possible, no matter what, right? Because if you have the drive and the will to be a winner, that's just what you do. So we're TP in this house, man. And like I said, I got my starter jacket on, man. I'm feeling good, but I'm getting warm, right? Because I'm getting hot because it's only like, you know, 60 degrees out maybe. But you have to wear the starter jacket because just in case you see a girl from school, and she sees you with a starter jacket, and then maybe you, I don't know, show off your butterfly knife, right? So get to TPing, man, and we're doing mad work, man. We're, 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 we're doing what we can. And so what happens is all of a sudden, mid-TP, some people walk out of the trailer next door, and we're like, oh, shit. And my brother, my brother is like, run. Everyone starts to run, but I'm glued. Bro, I'm glued to my feet. I cannot move. I cannot move. And I look up, and I see this guy, this dude walking towards me, and he's got a mullet, and he's smoking a cigarette, and he's got a tall boy beer. I don't know what kind it is, but probably a bush, 
a camouflage can bush. Most fucking definitely a camouflage can bush. He's walking towards me and I can't move because I feel, I feel like he's going to help me out. I feel like he's one of us. I feel like he's one of the good guys. Do you know how you can just look at somebody and you're like, that person has a kind soul. I can feel it. I feel it in my bones, right? And all of a sudden, as a guy gets closer, I see that he's carrying something. And as he gets closer, my mom's like, Quentin. And I'm just standing there looking at him. It's like my eyes caught him like Fabio. I could see his mullet. I trusted him. And he's got a toilet. He's carrying a fucking toilet out of his trailer. Now, I don't know where this man got his extra toilet at, but he's bringing me a toilet. And I'm utterly confused because I'm all right, you know, like I don't need your toilet. But he looks at me. He's like, hey, man. And I'm like, hey. And he, he looks at me dead ass. In a southern twang, raspy voice, looks at me, holds the toilet up and goes, use this fucker. And he gave me the toilet. And we put the toilet in the middle of, of Alan's yard. And it was just like this man paid it forward with an extra toilet that he had in his trailer. I didn't know, you know, that trailers had extra toilets in them. But, you know, maybe he peed in his front yard, too, all the time and didn't need this extra toilet. And I swear to God, he walks up to me, use this fucker, use this fucker. And I said, okay. So we put the toilet right in the front yard, finished TPing. I'd never been so excited in my life, man. Just that toilet was just there, dude. And it looked so good. There was so It looked like a winter wonderland. The toilet paper was flowing like a horse's mane. It looked heavenly. It looked like the pearly gates of heaven with convenient toilet access. It was just wonderful. And we left that night, man, and I felt good. Right, I called my girlfriend Nancy on the phone, on my landline phone that was only mine in my room, and I told her what we did, and I felt like such a badass, man. Such a badass. I was armed. I was dangerous. I was a rebel. I was up past my bedtime. I could have been arrested. Right In that moment, I imagined myself, my mugshot, Wearing my three-quarter starter jacket, getting my mugshot taken, and it being in the newspaper, and fathers of daughters that go to my school saying, you stay away from that McCree boy. He's a gangster. He ain't to be messed with. He's a bad boy, right? And I'm like, yo, what up? Come right on my back pegs, right? Just feeling good about myself. So we go home that night, go to sleep. Everything is good. I wake up in the morning. My house is covered. Yo, my house is covered in toilet paper. The second I woke up, it has so much toilet paper in it. I think Alan must have maxed out his credit card buying toilet paper. It was so fucking much toilet paper. And I walk out, man. It's just wonderful, to be honest with you. Like, I love to have a TP'd house. I don't care, right? Like, our Christmas lights were still up, too. <laughs> Not really. Maybe they were. I don't fucking know. And... There's toilet paper, man. And then I look, and I have to double take because um, where, I, where I lived growing up was a corner lot with a big field, fenced-in yard, big oat yard right next door. And I look out in the yard, and right in the middle of the yard is that fucking toilet in my yard with toilet paper everywhere. And it was just, that was it, man. I never laughed so hard in my life. That toilet paper, that toilet found its way back to my house. And now we had an extra toilet. So, you know, I woke up. Got, got one of my mom's cigarette lighters, right? Went outside, lit the toilet paper on fire, and cussed with my friends. And that was it. And I just knew that, you know, 
I had an extra toilet and I love to TP houses, man. And sometimes you give and sometimes you get. But I think teeping, I think TPing's fun, dude. And I still love to TP houses. And I would love, you know, I haven't been TPing in like five years, which is sad. But I think, you know, when the fall season comes along, it's all about toilet paper and houses, dude. You know, going out buying 100, 150 rolls. You know, don't get Scott's too thin. Don't get double roll Charmin. It's too thick. Get a little Cottonelle and go TP in houses. It's one of the best things you can do. I love it. And that is what October means to me. Okay, so with this being a baseball podcast, we should probably talk about October baseball and not October felonies. <laughs> and like, so, and with it being a nostalgic podcast too, I feel like I have to talk about one of the best World Series that I haven't fully dove into, right? The 1991 World Series, arguably the greatest World Series that's ever played. And you don't have to be a Twins or a Braves fan to deal with that. Now, growing up in Southern Illinois, the TBS Braves, they were my fucking team, man. They were so good. And, you know, when they, every World Series they lost, it was just sort of like, oh man, like that's a bummer. But me being eight years old and not having developed, you know, alcoholism over sports teams gone wrong it's like oh okay I'll just go ride my bike around and sneak a cigarette like it's cool dude but the Braves and this twins in 1991 World Series now right I was only eight years old so I didn't really grasp just how great of a World Series this was and if you don't know I'm gonna go over some points that I've read about over the past few days so first and foremost if you think about the 1991 World Series, you're immediately going to go to Game 7, as you should. You had a 37-year-old Jack Morris. He played only one year for the Minnesota Twins. Now, Jack Morris was from Minnesota and had attempted to possibly go to Minnesota in the mid-80s, but collusion had stopped that, right? So his contract... Oh, if I can remember, Jack Morris, so Jack Morris and the Tigers won the World Series in 84, and it was just no more than a couple of years that, oh, there it was, in in the off, so when the 1986 season ended, Jack Morris was a free agent, and he explored going to the Minnesota Twins, and the only reason why I remember that is because the Minnesota Twins won in 87, and that was the offseason of 86 was all the collusion shit in Major League Baseball. So Jack Morris had just helped his team win a World Series, had like a 21-win season and couldn't get a contract. No one would sign him. Just exactly what happened to Andre Dawson, right? Andre Dawson was a free agent from the Expos. And nobody would sign him either until he gave the Cubs a blank check. The Cubs paid him the minimum amount of salary they could probably. And he hit like 40-something home runs and won an MVP, right? So Jack Morris had explored going to the Twins for the 87th season, but it didn't happen. And that was sort of because of the collusion thing. There was a guy named Andy McPhail who was a GM for the, the Twins who like pulled the plug on it and was like, nope, we can't sign him, shut it down, because they were all colluding with each other. So Jack Morris goes and signs with the Tigers and isn't a free agent until the 1990 season ends. And that is when everything lines up and he goes to Minnesota. Now, Jack Morris goes to a Minnesota team that in 1990 had the fourth worst record in baseball, but they had just won a World Series in 87, right? So baseball's a weird sport where you can go from 
first to last, but not often ever actually from last to first. This in 1991 was the first World Series that any team had went from last to first place and won a pennant. But it happened in the National League and the American League because the Braves, they had the worst, the worst record in baseball. Crazy. But it's the Game 7 that everyone remembers. Jack Morris, 37 years old, he pitches 10 innings, okay? Now, the Minnesota Twins manager, his name was Tom Kelly, and when the ninth inning ended, he wanted to take Jack Morris out. So Jack Morris is sitting on the bench, and Tom Light starts to walk over. And Kirby Puckett said this in an interview. Something along the lines of, as Tom Kelly's walking over, Jack Morris looks at Tom Kelly and is like, don't you fucking think about it. I'll kill you. <laughs> so, like, Jack Morris stays in the game. And what's crazy is Jack Morris in the ninth inning and the tenth inning, eight pitches in each inning to get out of that inning. This is a 37-year-old guy going 10 innings. Jack Morris said he probably could have pitched like 15 or 16 innings. He was just jacked. But imagine it. Like, he's in his home state just doing work, you know. But Jack Morris had ran into some traffic in Game 7, so it wasn't a, a breeze for him to pitch. So in the eighth inning... Jack Morris was pitching, and there were no outs in the eighth inning, but there were runners on second and third, right? But Jack Morris had a really good fork ball. Well, they, they call it a split-fingered fastball now, but back in the day, it was called a fork ball. And I don't remember who was on base. I don't know if it was like Pendleton or Gant. I'm not too sure, but he got somebody to ground out it might have been Ron Gant he got to ground out and then they had intentionally walk Sid Bream and then Kent Herbeck was playing first base Kent Herbeck also a Minnesota native which is just so fucking awesome Kent Herbeck was the man dude before um so in the eight so Kent Herbeck was on the 87 twins team and the 91 twins team and before the 87 world series in game seven Kent Herbeck woke up at four in the morning to go duck hunting <laughs> and then just went to play the game, dude. Always, always had a big wad of fucking jaw in his mouth. Like, dude, he's, he's a big hunter, man. Kent Herbeck was that dude. And Kent Herbeck, if you don't know the name, huge, huge Minnesota legend, an absolute vacuum cleaner at first base, hell of a defensive first baseman, and could hit, you know, 25, 26 home runs a year. You know, he's sort of one of those guys that's the Hall of Very Good, right? He's not a Hall of Famer, and I don't say Hall of Very Good is like a diss because you're not a Hall of Famer, but Ken Herbeck was a damn good first baseman. He had a damn good bat. He had a damn good glove, and he was a damn good guy to have in the clubhouse, right? And before the 1991 series, and I guess he just liked to lighten things up. He Before both, before game one and game two, he was talking to the press about his high scores in bowling. And apparently, he bowled at 267, and he was really excited about it. I used, Dude, bowling was the shit, man. I was in a bowling league when I was a kid, and those old, like, 80s bowling days, dude, were awesome, man. Like, they had cigarettes and vending machines, and it was so cool, dude. And that's what Ken Herbeck did. Big bowler, man. But so the Game 7, he actually, so, he, you know, he had some traffic in the 8th inning. There were a couple other times in that Game 7 he had some traffic, too, but just went the full way. And then you had John Smoltz, 24-year-old, maybe like his third year in the league. He went 7 and a third scoreless, ended up getting pulled. I think 
I don't know. Mike Stanton maybe came in for Ren Relief, John Smoltz. I don't really remember. And it was Alejandro Pena that sort of gave up the game in Game 7. But listen, I just want to start from the top about what was so cool about this 1991 World Series, right? So to get sort of how the games unfolded. So five of the seven games, because it went seven games, five of the games were decided by one run. And five of the games weren't decided until the eighth inning or later, right? If you had any sort of ulcer problems or a waning liver from the stress, like, I'll just, it's, it was a rough, rough, rough series. This series was so intense. At the beginning of game seven, Lonnie Smith is the leadoff hitter for the Atlanta Braves, and he walks up to the plate, and Brian Harper is catching in game seven for Jack Morris. Brian Harper, good catcher, good mullet, damn good mullet, and he, Lonnie Smith shakes hands with Brian Harper before first pitch. And Jack Morris is on the mound and he's fucking pissed. He's he's like, Jack Morris straight up was like, I want to go punch my catcher. Like, you don't shake hands with the enemy. This is game seven. We're at war. And Jack Morris was shook by that. But it was a few games before that, Lonnie Smith had barreled over Brian Harper at a play at the plate, which, and Lonnie hit Brian hard at the plate trying to score a run, but Brian held onto the ball real good, and Brian wasn't injured. He took the hit like a champ, and Lonnie fucking got him good, and so it might have had, that handshake may have had something to do with, you know, the hit at the plate, I would imagine, just as much as it had to do with, like, a sign of respect, because this is game seven, and this has been, you know, I think the players knew just how good of a series that they were playing and just how grueling that it was, right? But what's funny about Jack Morris is so when the um, uh, who hit the walk-off from Dan Gladden scored on a Gene Larkin walk-off single, right? Now, when that happened, the Braves outfielders didn't make it into the dugout before the Twins started celebrating. So you had like Brian Hunter, Ron Gant, and maybe David Justice in right field. I don't really remember, but I know Ron Gant and Brian Hunter were out in the outfield. And they're walking in as the Twins are celebrating. And both Tom Kelly, the Twins manager, and Jack Morris stop celebrating and actually have like an embrace, a handshake with these guys, you know, telling them just good game or whatever, just like you used to do in Little League. And that goes to show just how wild of a series it was and how much of a toll it took on players. And part of it too, man, is just the Metrodome was just so loud. And I think that had a lot to do with just the excitement in the game. The Metrodome had a, the Metrodome since been torn down, but the Metrodome had this white fabric roof and that made the dome unbelievably loud. During both the 87 and the 91 World Series, the decibel levels were measured so high that they were comparable to a jet airliner, meaning that it was so loud, the loudness was close to the threshold of pain. Literally, players had to wear earplugs because it was so damn loud. And if you watch the games on YouTube now, you can just sense how hype the crowd was. So not only... Statistically speaking, you know, scoring-wise, was the series so intense, but with the fans showing up and just the craziness in the stands, it was amplified by playing four of those seven games in the Metrodome. But the lineups on both of these teams was phenomenal. Like I said, the 
the Atlanta Braves were in prime, prime TBS days right here. So you had Ron Gant, Dave Justice, Jeff Treadway, you had John Smoltz, Tom Glavin, Steve Avery, who was like a 21-year-old that just had a phenomenal season. 18-win season. Tom Glavin had actually won the Cy Young. Terry Pendleton had only been a Brave for probably one or two years, I think, at this point, because it was in 91. I don't remember exactly, because Terry Pendleton was a Cardinal. I don't remember when he came over from the Cardinals. And then also, this 1991 was the first year that the, the Braves signed Otis Nixon. Well, shit, the Braves... Yeah, the Braves signed... Yeah, either... I don't remember. Otis Nixon was a Montreal Expo in 1990, and the Braves either traded for him or signed for him. I'm not too sure, but Otis Nixon didn't play in the World Series because he got busted for coke in 87 and he was on like these strict drug testing policies as part of like his program to get back in the league and he failed a test for coke like in September of 1990 and had to miss the rest of the season because they gave him like a a 60-day suspension or something like that but also in 1991 the Braves had signed Deion Sanders but he had to stop playing for the Braves I want to say like in July because in his Atlanta Falcons contract he had to report to training camp, which is so wild, though. So the last game of the 1991 season that Deion Sanders played for the Braves, he hit like a game-winning 2-1 home run or something like that and then just had to leave and go to training camp or whatever. And that was it for him because that was in his contract. He had to go. So but the Braves teams, dude, they were, they were loaded, man. This was They had played the Pittsburgh Pirates in the NLCS, and that went all the way to seven games. And one of the key points on how the Braves won that series was the pitching of Steve Avery, who was just completely lights out. Now, I don't think the 1991 NLCS, I don't think that's the one with the Sid Bream slide. I think the Sid Bream slide is in 1992. I'd have to look that up. Yeah, that's right. Okay, the Sid Bream slide was in 1992, but still, 1992, they played the Pirates to seven games. In 1991, they played the Pirates to seven games. And now, 1992, I think that was Barry Bonds left. He was like, I'm gone. I'm out of here. I didn't want to be here. He wanted to go play in, you know, San Francisco where his dad was or whatever. But these Braves teams, dude, so, 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 so good. They had Raphael Billiard at short. I could just name them all. But the Twins, dude, the Twins... And so some of their offseason transactions, I think they had signed Jack Morris. They had signed Chili Davis. Uh, that's probably about all I remember. They'd let Gary Gaetti go in free agency. And that's really all I can remember. But as far as what the Twins were cooking, man, you had uh, obviously Kirby Puckett. Kirby Puckett was about like second or third. Now Chuck Knobloch, he was a rookie in 1991. And he had a hell of a season. I think he actually won rookie of the year. And so, and Chuck Knobloch had a phenomenal season and playoff series, I'm pretty sure. Then you have like Kirby Puckett, Shane Mack, Greg Gagne at short. You had Kent Herbeck at first. Uh, I don't know who else played in the outfield besides Kirby Puckett. Um, but though, but obviously, like the big names for the Twins are Jack Morris, Kirby Puckett, Kent Herbeck, Dan Gladden. Dan Gladden may have played third. I don't really remember. And then, yeah, you had. Um, Gene Larkin, I think that was a pinch hit hit that Gene Larkin had. Huge names, man. Huge names, even better mullets. And, you know, that's just sort of what the situation was right there. And such a such a huge, huge good series. And I think one of the most impressive things, right, outside of Jack Morris's 10th 
10, 10 inning shutout in game seven of a World Series, which is just completely bonkers, dude. Because you're in your home, you're in your home state, and you're in the Metrodome, and it's game seven of a World Series. And during the whole thing, Jack Moore said he was just cool. Like he wasn't stressed. Traffic would get on bases, and he said he had never been so focused in any game in his life than in this 1991 series. But Kirby Puckett. What Kirby Puckett did, right? So coming into game six, Kirby was batting like a buck, 67 in the series, right? Because the the home team won every single game in this series. And so in game six, when everything went back to the Metrodome because the Twins had home field advantage, they were down three games to two. And Kirby Puckett was pretty determined to the point where coming into game six, he told his teammates, he was like, hey, like, just get on my back. I'm going to carry you guys. We're going to make this happen. Now, you know that baseball is not that kind of sport, right? There's no quarterback in baseball that can lead the team on a game-winning drive. There's no, like, Michael Jordan who can just take every shot and, you know, win the game for you. It doesn't work like that in baseball. But if there was ever a time where a baseball player took over on a baseball field just like a basketball or football player would, my God, it was Kirby Puckett. Listen, so in the game six, first inning, I don't, I think Dan Gladden may have been, I don't remember who was batting leadoff in game six, but I know, you notice that I don't look this stuff. I'm recording the podcast. Listen, if you want, if you want like some CSI type, information that's just a forensic report to a T you got to go listen to like somebody else right like I'm not your guy but I can't remember who batted leadoff in game six but that person got out but Chuck Knobloch I think was batting second right and Chuck Chuck Knobloch gets on base he gets a single then Kirby Puckett's batting third Kirby hits a triple now he hits a triple down the left field line it's a ground ball down the third baseline, when it goes past third base, this ball is on the ground, and it just rolls all the way to the outfield. And I think Brian Hunter was playing left field, and he expected the ball to carry him, and it didn't, right? So that gave Kirby a few extra steps. But if you look at the play, you don't think that guy could get the third. And when you look at Kirby Puckett, he's sort of built like Hack Wilson, you know, which is sort of built like a keg of beer, right? And, but Kirby Puckett was so fast. So this guy's all of a sudden at third, and he was there with time to spare. And you're just like, holy shit. And that was, you know, in game six, right? That was a game-defining inning right there because you, being the Minnesota Twins, you would just drop three games in a row in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. And I believe game five that the Twins lost, I think they lost 14 to five. So the momentum, and I get to how loud the Metrodome is, but there is such thing as momentum and it was all in the Braves dugout at that point. So for Kirby to come out and knock that triple and really just turn it to force, to will, a double into a triple, which I believe is what he did because he just was so damn fast, was huge. Because in games like that, it's really important to get the lead because in game six, Steve Avery was pitching, and Steve Avery had already pitched game three, I think, in this series. Or maybe Steve Avery pitched game two. Steve Avery pitched game two in the series, and he had two seven-inning shutout balls 
in the 1991 NLCS. So Steve Avery was on. And to get to that guy early on, I believe the Twins ended up scoring three runs in that first inning was ginormous, right? Okay. So fast forward to the third inning of game six, and you got Ron Gant up to bat. Now, Ron Gant, one of my absolute favorite baseball players growing up. I remember there was a uh, Longfellow School, which is a grade school I went to, right? They had a baseball field, sort of a baseball field. It was a field with a backstop. And my old man and myself, he'd take me there for batting practice. So he'd get off work, he'd go throw me some pitches, and I'd hit some balls, right? And I got an Easton reflex. And I was super fucking pumped to have this baseball bat. And I would pretend to be Ron Gant, and my go-to batting stance was Ron Gant's batting stance because he just like he was so muscled up and he would hold the bat over his head and sort of just move it. And anytime during batting practice, I was Ron Gant. I envisioned myself as Ron Gant. And it was my goal to hit the balls past the second set of monkey bars in the field that batting practice happened at. And each time I did, I was like, yeah, buddy, I'm strong like Ron Gant, dude. And Ron Gant was that guy. And do you know, listen to this shit. In 1991, Ron Gant had a 30-30 season. And then in 1992, Ron Gant had a 30-30 season. And when he did that, he became only the third guy in baseball history to have back-to-back 30-30 seasons. The other two guys being Willie Mays and Bobby Bonds. Like, wow, this guy was on a tear. But I think like in 1994, he broke his leg. 94, 95, he broke his leg in an ATV accident. The Braves dumped him. I think the Reds picked him up and then the Cardinals picked him up. Yeah, he had some injuries, but he still had some good seasons later in his career. And he got paid well by the Reds and the Cardinals because he still had speed. But I don't know if he ever, after he broke his leg, had another 30-30 season. But he was good, dude. So what it is, so check this out. So at the old Metrodome in left field, there was a normal wall. I think this wall was like seven feet high, but the outfield in the Metrodome was like AstroTurf or whatever it was. It was artificial, and when a ball was hit on it, the ball would bounce so damn high, right? So in game seven, when uh, Dan Gladden hits like a bloop single, but it turns into a double, it's because the ball bounces so high and that you have to wait for it, right? So the... At the Metrodome, there were so many occasions where they there were just ground rule doubles. Anyone hits one into the gap, it's a ground rule double because the ball would bounce so high. So they put like another seven feet of plexiglass up to, you know, limit ground rule doubles, but it made it harder to hit a home run. So Ron Gant hits a ball to the left field gap, to the left center gap, and it looks like it's going to be a home run, but it's not over the plexiglass, right? But it's probably... The wall, I think, is seven feet, and then plus the plexiglass, which I think that totaled like 13 feet or something like that. So Ron Gant hits this ball, and it's about, it looks like it's four feet up the plexiglass, maybe even higher. And Kirby Puckett jumps for this ball like Spud Webb in a dunk contest. There's no way Kirby Puckett was much taller than 5'8", I swear. And this guy leaped for the ball like he flew through the air Kirby Puckett was 5'8 178 which he might have been about 200 sometimes and just to catch dude go to YouTube there's a phenomenal side shot of Kirby Puckett jumping to rob this Ron Gant home run well it wouldn't have been a home run but 
it would have been extra bases, would have been at least a double. Who knows how far the ball would have bounced. The, Terry Pendleton was on first base and thought he had it, and he had to hustle back because Kirby Puckett almost doubled him off, threw it from the fucking wall. He had his cutoff guy. Of course, it wasn't a Bo Jackson throw, but this leap by Kirby Puckett, dude, in this game six, do or die game, was a necessity. So he forcefully helped score runs in the first inning, and then with his defense, he had Kirby Puckett in center field, was a phenomenal defender. Don't let the beer keg shape fool you. Kirby Puckett was that guy, and I only say that because if you're listening to this podcast, hell, you may have not been born until 1992. I truly don't know, but Kirby Puckett was a legend, man. Kirby Puckett was offense, defense. He could get on base, hit for average. He could hit for power. He was a good dude. Kirby Puckett had 30 home run seasons before. He had, well, he had 130 home run season, but he did 20-something home runs every year. Good dude. And But that play, nuts. And then, dude, it just goes on, man. So the game six goes into extra innings, and I think maybe it goes into 11 or 12 innings, right? I think it's 11. And it's the bottom of the 11th inning. And Charlie Liebrandt comes in to pitch. Now, Kirby Puckett has seen Charlie Liebrandt in game one before. Charlie Liebrandt was a left-handed pitcher. Kirby Puckett destroyed left-handed pitching. But Charlie had got the best of him a little bit. Now, the, the Minnesota Twins had a coach named Tom Crowley. I don't know if he was the hitting coach. I don't know who he was, but he was the coach. Now, Kirby Puckett knew he was going to bat this inning, and he told Tom Crowley, he goes, listen, if they leave Charlie Liebrand in, I'm hitting a home run, and I'll end this game. And Tom was like, let's do it. Kirby Puckett gets to the plate, sure shitting, home run. You get the legendary jackbutt call. We'll see you tomorrow night. And as Kirby Puckett crosses home plate, he hugs Tom and says, I told you so, I told you so. So that game six home run, Kirby didn't call it like Babe Ruth did at Wrigley Field, but he called it when he was on deck, and he told his coach, said, I'm going to hit a home run. If they leave Charlie in, I'm going yard, and I will in this game. And I so help me God he did it, man. And it's game six with Kirby Puckett where you had a baseball player where baseball players aren't supposed to be able to take over games and influence them like that because you only bat four times a game, and you can't control when the ball gets hit to you. You can't be shortstop and center fielder, but if there was ever a game where one player took over and helped will his team to victory. It was Kirby Bucket in game six of the 1991 World Series. So listen to this. So when I was a kid, my dad was my baseball coach, and he drove an 87 Chevy S10. It was a four-cylinder, four-speed. It was so, so slow. And what's funny is I got that truck when I was 16, so I know it was really slow. But it would do a hell of a burnout because the first thing I did when I was learning to drive a stick shift was dump the clutch and brake torque that sucker, man. And it would one tire fire, dude. It was one, It was the best truck I've ever had by far. I painted it black and put red racing stripes on it. It looked like it had a 350 V8 in it, but it had a 2.5 four-cylinder. They called it the Iron Duke engine. One of the best Chevy has ever made, right? And one of the things I remember about Little League when I was a kid was my dad taking me to baseball practice because he was my coach and we'd get in that Chevy S10 it was a single cab I'd have my Easton bat bag on my lap inside I had a couple baseball bats I had my Easton reflex then I had my a little bit smaller Easton black magic bat we would just throw it in there I had my Franklin batting gloves my Easton 
uh, sweatbands for my wrist, and that was my favorite. You remember it, right? You get ready for Little League, and you put on the wristbands, and they were black, and they had the big E on them. That I'd wrap up my Franklin batting gloves and, you know, get in the on-deck circle. And I just, like, dude, pretended I was Dave Parker with a sledgehammer. Like, I was ready to batter baseballs, man. Those were the days. And inside his truck, man, because he worked construction, so it was a messy truck. You know, he had this big mug that he would put his coffee in because when you wake up at 4 a.m. and then don't get home until 4 and have to coach baseball practice, you basically need all the coffee you get. I don't know how he found time to dump, right? Because, you know, when you drink that much coffee, shit happens. But he was a hard-working guy, man, and that's one of the things I hold closest to me when I think of baseball. It's really one of the reasons why I started this podcast I would say probably a few years ago, I went back home to Illinois. My grandmother passed away, and my mom gave me one of my old gloves and one of my old baseball bats, and the second I saw it, I I was excited. I hadn't seen these items in forever, and playing Little League ball seemed like a lifetime ago. I just turned 37, and I mean, God, that's what, 26, 27 years ago, just crazy, and she gives me this stuff, and it felt really good to see it, but also there was this powerful feeling of nostalgia that came over me. It almost felt painful because I'm looking at these things and it was like I wanted nothing more than to be there playing Little League again and because I couldn't, it hurt. So I'm looking at these items and I feel pain and at the same time I feel joy and all these memories come over me and one of them was my dad taking me to baseball practice. Now my parents still smoke to this day and I always remember my dad's truck. He'd always be smoking a Marlboro and the ashtray was always overflowed. So in an S10, the ashtray was right below the uh, the radio. He didn't even have a cassette player in his truck, right? He, it was a working man's truck. So there were honey bun wrappers on the floor, an ashtray loaded with cigarettes, just a mound of ashes. And he had a radio in the truck, right? No cassette player. So on the way to baseball practice, it was nothing but country music. And God, I hated, hated country music, right? So I was born in 83, So I grew up listening to a lot of like late 80s and 90s country music. And dude, you wouldn't believe how much I hated it. And he also, when we would be in my mom's car, because my mom had a cassette player, and he would listen to Creedence Clearwater Revival. And Jesus Christ, I hated that fucking band. I was just, but it's like that when you're a kid, you hate everything that your parents do. But then as you get older, you remember those things and you love them, right? And... It's like I rem- I looked at these items and I remembered the truck and the music just like it was yesterday. But one of the most nostalgic things to me when it comes to baseball is tobacco, right? My my old man smoked. And, you know, like the same, like when we grew up playing Little League, it was like, yo, the coach had a cigarette. The third base coach was smoking a cigarette while he's waving you home. He's got a cigarette hanging out of the mouth. And it's just like tobacco was – it's just – and it still sort of is if you're an old school guy. Um Tobacco is embedded into the game, and it's so interesting because you have to ask yourself, like, why, like, why, why is tobacco and baseball so intertwined? Like, with one, you get the other. And I swear to God, like, I'll buy a pack of Marlboro cigarettes from time to time. I'll go out and buy a pack and just smoke them because it feels good, right? I'm not a smoker, but in the same way that that baseball bat and glove that my mom gave me took me back to, you know, my past and how good it was. It, the cigarette, like tobacco does the same thing. A cigarette for me does the exact same thing. And I'm not talking about living in the past, right? But I think it's really fun to sort of dig in and, you know, open up a pack of baseball cards or look at your old baseball stuff. And 
think back to how good those times were. And in a way, when you think about it, it's not that I want to live in the past, but through baseball, I can really enjoy and recognize how great of a job my parents did at raising me. And in turn, I can use that in my present and raise my daughter and, you know, me and my wife build this family of just joy and, you know, it makes you want to do things for your kids and your wife that, you know, your parents did for you, you know, whether it's, um, you know, going to a baseball game or just buying a gift or, you know, I remember every Christmas and just how good that sort of stuff felt growing up. And it's weird because this vehicle that is baseball takes me back to all that stuff. And when I really unpack it, it's like I do love the game of baseball, but, you know, starting this podcast and talking about a lot of old baseball stuff and on my social media posting about a lot of old baseball stuff, yes, it is the game, but those things take me to so many different places. And really, it's the people that you share the game with that oftentimes makes it most special, right? Because chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, because I'm not popular at all, you, you played baseball, but you're not a professional baseball player, right? And most of us don't get that dream to play professional baseball for a living. But I would say that the things we got from baseball, the time shared with family, when we're able to look back on the nostalgia of the game and how we feel when we think about it, where it's a little bit of pain because we want to be there, but at the same time, it's so much joy because we can harness how we felt then and the things we did and the things our parents did for us and apply it to our current life is one of the things why I think baseball is such a beautiful sport, right? And so I did some digging because I just wondered, like, where in the world, like, how did tobacco and baseball meet, right? It's a really interesting story. So tobacco, so when cigarettes came out, they promoted cigarettes as part of an active and vigorous lifestyle, right? It's like cigarettes were the original multivitamin, right? Like the original Wheaties, dude. It was so awesome. So in order to do this, they associated baseball with America's pastime because at the time, baseball was the most popular sport on the entire planet. So to do this, they started making the tobacco cards, right? You, of course, know the original, the Honus Wagner card. That's like the hidden, like the holy grail of baseball cards and really interesting story behind that. So the reason why the Honus Wagner tobacco card, what they call it, like a T206 or something, the reason why that card is so popular is because when the tobacco company started printing the baseball cards, when you bought the cigarettes, and of course, it was to promote an active lifestyle because baseball players were active and they were strong and they were just these Paul Bunyan-esque heroes and smoking cigarettes could make you like that, right? Like eating Wheaties or having a healthy diet, right? And so as they start to print these cards, Honus Wagner's like, no, don't print my card. I don't want you to print my card. And nobody really knows why Honus Wagner stopped the tobacco company from printing his card because he had endorsed cigarettes before. Uh, so nobody really knows why that was the case because nobody knew cigarettes were harmful and baseball players always, always endorse cigarettes. Like Lou Gehrig, he endorsed Camel cigarettes. Babe Ruth, he endorsed White Owl cigars. And listen to this. Um, <laughs> holy crap. I don't know what cigarette company it was, but both. So there's a cigarette ad out there that states that the World Series champion Giants, oh shit, yeah, it's a camel ad. Okay, so there's an old camel ad from like the 30s or 40s or something like that. And on the ad, it has the whole San Francisco Giants World Series winning team. And the ad states that 21 of 23 
World Series champion San Francisco, or I guess New York Giants, 21 of 23 New York Giants smoked camel cigarettes and they won the World Series. So they're advertising these cigarettes as performance enhancers, literally like the original Wheaties, dude. And that's what it's saying. Like 21 out of 23 players that won the World Series smoked camels. And you need to smoke camels too. And even the St. Louis Cardinals had an ad just like that because they won the 34 World Series. And the camel ad said 21 of 23 St. Louis Cardinals world champions smoked camels. And I absolutely love it. Like, that was the thing, man. Like, if you smoke cigarettes, you're a winner. And that's how this whole thing started because tobacco companies wanted to be looked at as an active lifestyle brand, which is so wild, dude. And like, it's just like, don't eat kale, just smoke a camel, man. Like, you're good. I love it, dude. I mean, those were just better times, man. I don't like the taste of kale. I don't care to drink a lot of water, to be honest with you. But if you smoke cigarettes, hey, you're healthy, dude. And it's just the raddest thing ever. And so that's sort of how it got going. And that was pretty much it. But baseball players also smoked like cigarettes. They would like smoke cigarettes in the dugout, like in the majors, even up until like the 80s, just smoking heaters in the dugout. Like everyone's seen that picture of Keith Hernandez. And there's one of Dave Parker out there that's really good. Well, these guys in the 70s and 80s, they're just lighting up in the dugout because they want to get that good nicotine buzz. It was so, dude, baseball players still do that, right? Not as many as they used to, but some. Even in 1995, the American Dental Association did a study to try to disprove any performance benefit related to nicotine. And, of course, they disproved it, but baseball players didn't really care, right? They just kept doing the thing, right? And that's just sort of what it did. Baseball players felt that tobacco use gave them an edge on the field. It was sort of like speed, but that's what nicotine does. It'll sort you it'll sort of speed you up a little bit. So in a way, like Red Man and Beach Nut and Cigarettes, Camels, Winston's, Marlboro's, whatever, those were the original performance enhancing drugs, which is so wild because I guess baseball players have always been looking for a performance enhancement ever since the game started because you talk about the steroid era, but before that, guys were taking greenies, which I talked about that a few episodes ago, is when all the guys during World War II, yeah, World War II, they went over, I even had to go to war, guys like Ted Williams and stuff, and then they come back, but in the war, because a lot of these guys were pilots and stuff, you had to stay up, you know, you couldn't sleep a lot, so you had to stay up late and be really alert because it's war after all. So they were giving these guys basically amphetamines. And when the war ended, all these baseball players brought the amphetamines back that they were using in battle and started taking them on the baseball field. And then before that, it was tobacco, man. That's all you wanted. And then with tobacco, guys were throwing spitballs like crazy. Spitballs and shine balls. Like how, how much do you have to spit on a baseball to call it a fucking shine ball, dude? And that was when... That's what ended the dead ball era was when they outlawed the spitball and the shine ball because guys were just like chewing nine pounds of red man and just loading the baseball up with it to the point where you couldn't really see it because you were playing with a brown ball on a brown field, you know, and, you know, people were getting hurt, right? Bean balls were a problem. I think somebody died like in the 20s, right? One guy died. I think in the history of baseball by getting hit, and that was sort of in the dead ball era because the ball was just so junky, dude. The balls were getting oblong. It was wild. And it makes me think of that one time, Joe Necro. <laughs> Joe Necro, when he was pitching for the Twins, 
I think it was in the 80s or something like that where it was in the first inning. The game had just started. And I'm not too sure who the Twins were playing, but whoever their opponent was was like, check the ball because they swear it was scuffed because the ball was moving like crazy. And so they come out to talk to Joe Necro and they're trying to get Joe Necro to empty his pockets. And he's like, fuck you, man. I'm not doing it. Like, I'm not emptying my pockets. He's like, I don't have anything. You guys are crazy. And he like nonchalantly puts his hand in his back pocket and then empties his back pocket. But when he does it, he's got an emery board and a piece of sandpaper and a piece of sandpaper. Actually, I think he already handed over maybe the piece of sandpaper. But then when he emptied his pockets, the emery board came out. It was something like that. Basically, I don't know if he had the emery board and the sandpaper in the same pocket. So let's just say he did. So he's got his hands in his pockets and goes to empty his pockets out. But he he grabs the sandpaper in the emery board and throws it to the side, hoping nobody will see it. But an ump in his peripheral vision sees just all this shit fly out of Joe Necro's pocket and they pick it up and they're like, you're immediately ejected. Like this can't happen. You have an emery board and a piece of sandpaper. And you know what Joe Necro said post game? He goes, listen, I always keep an emery board in my pocket because sometimes my nails get a little, my nails get a little long and I have to file them down to throw the pitch better. And then I keep the sandpaper as well to make my nails smooth. And I'm like, dude, were you trying to get a manicure on the mountain? Like, nobody believed that for shit. He's like, yeah, I just keep an emery board and a piece of sandpaper in my pocket all the time. And I'm like, dude, that reminds me of the time I got busted shoplifting when I was four years old. And I stole a shitload of bubble tape and a bunch of change. <laughs> I'm not even going to get into it. But I, okay, no, I will listen. So when I was like five years old, my mom takes me to the grocery store with her because that's what she did, right? And it was Max Superfood. That's the place that was close to the house and my mom would always shop at. And I always was a pickpocket, right? So my, I had a jean jacket with like an inside pocket and I loved it. So anytime we'd go to the store, I would just steal stuff. I loved bubble tape. All I wanted was bubble tape. So I would always steal bubble tape, right? That was like my go-to. And on this particular occasion, of course, I stole bubble tape. But as I'm walking through the store, I, I get separated from my mom because that's what I do. You know, you got to go scout. And the, the there's a guy like emptying the vending machines and getting all the change out of him. And I see he's not there, but there are these buckets of change, just all quarters. So like any four-year-old does, I start stuffing all of my pockets with quarters. So I stuff my inside jean jacket pockets. I was wearing cargo pants at the time. So I stuff as many quarters in my pocket as humanly possible. And so I leave the store and I've got all these quarters and all of this bubble tape. <laughs> and also I got a watch too, right? And that's, that's what fucked me up, right? And I don't know why a four-year-old steals a watch, but apparently this guy had like sort of an expensive gold watch. Maybe he was the store owner. I don't remember. And so I stole his watch too because I guess he had taken off his watch while he was shuffling through the change so he didn't scratch his watch. So about an hour later, we're at the house and I tell my mom, I said, mom, can you help me get this watch on? Because his watch was too big and I couldn't, I couldn't snap it, right? And my mom looks at me, she goes, would you get this watch? And I was like, out of the vending machine. And my mom's looking at this watch and she's like, this is a gold watch. What the fuck? And then she like puts, then she hears all this change in my pocket because I'm a pack rat, right? When I was a kid, like, like I said, like I always had knives on me and I always loved quarters. So I always had change on me, but like my pants were way down because I had so many quarters. 
And then my mom's like, what's in your pocket? And I was like, nothing. And she's like, what's in your pocket? I was like, oh, just some quarters I got out of the washing machine. And she goes, empty your pockets. So I empty my pockets. And I'm still thinking I can get away with it, just like Joe Necro in the Emory Board and Sandpaper. So I empty out all these quarters, and it's like $50 worth of quarters. My mom's like, where'd you get these at? And I said, I found them in the washing machine. I guess they were dad's. And she's like, no, you didn't, man. What the fuck? So I got caught. But I tried to sell myself out of it, just like Joe Necro. Okay, so what's next? Let's see. I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast or not, but I have a heavy baseball card addiction. But... It's all from the junk wax era. So I've discovered, this was about a year and a half ago, I discovered that all the baseball cards I grew up on, like in the late 80s and 90s, you can get on eBay for dirt cheap still in the wax packs. You can get complete sets in the box still, right? Like a lot of times on Christmas, my mom would get me like full box sets of baseball cards from Walmart. Like my two favorite sets growing up were 91 Don Russ and 91 upper deck, right? And uh, I loved the cards, right? So one of the first things I did, because my mom threw away all that stuff when I got moved out of the house, right? But the good news is you could get all that stuff for cheap online. So I, listen, if you've ever watched The Office, I'm two seconds from going outside and yelling bankruptcy because I've spent so much money on baseball cards. Like my Credit card company is going to call me at some point and be like, hey, what are all these eBay purchases? Like, what the hell is going on? I'm going to have to explain to them that I've been buying wax packs from 1988. It's the wildest thing in the world. And that's one of the things I've discovered, right? So it's not just the box sets that you can get, but you can get wax packs that have never been opened from 1988. You can open a pack of 88 tops and eat the gum, right? It... You may or may not need to go to the emergency room, right? I don't know if penicillin will fix the problem there, but, you know, anything to kill the bacteria that you might take in from eating that gum. But here's the thing. I'll open, I opened up a pack of 88 tops last week and the gum on the inside was perfect. And I was like, I ate the gum, right? And it basically just dissolved in my mouth. It was like, you couldn't even chew it, right? It was really hard. It broke up and then it turned to water. And I was like, oh, that's really funny. Then I was like, what did they have to put in this gum to make it last 32 years? I almost said 22 years. Holy crap. What the hell did they put in this gum to make it hold up for 32 years? Because whatever it is, I just ate it. (laughs) And if you guys don't hear from me ever again after this, it was nice knowing you. And it was the gum that got me. So fight for me. (laughs) And... Also, what I so check this out, right? One of the funnest things in the world when I was a kid was going to the card shop by my house, and it was called My Stuff Card Shop. And me and my buddies would ride our bikes there. I had a GT Performer. It was like splatter paint, black and purple, dude, perfect for the '90s. Right? You know what I mean? I, was, I yeah, front and back pegs. It had a gyro, so I could do like bar spins and tail whips, and you know I could ride girls on my back pegs could never did (laughs) and we were right to the card shop which was awesome because you would go there you would buy your wax packs and you would buy single cards right and so I've been buying full boxes of wax packs which are basically the display boxes that the stores would get shipped all these guys on the internet have just boxes of these unused cards which is why they call it the junk 
wax era because you can buy full display boxes of wax packs with all the wax packs in it. So right now in my office, it sort of looks like a card shop, and I absolutely love it. Like, I cracked open a pack of 86 Fleer the other day, and it was damn good cards in here, like phenomenal. And the cards, first, first and foremost, smell so good. I can't get over it. I love the smell of a baseball card. And before I go on about the baseball cards, you should absolutely go to eBay and buy a wax pack of your favorite baseball cards, get them, open them, and just smell them. They smell so good. You know, like I am this close. I kid you not. As in my Instagram account just got 10,000 followers like two days ago. And that gives you like a swipe up feature, which is really good for selling merchandise, which would be fun, right? I can make like some old nostalgic, funny baseball t-shirts and it would be a blast. But <laughs> what I thought about, dude, check this out. I think... If they made baseball card cologne, I would wear it and the population would go up like a hundredfold because all the sex that would be happening because all the gentlemen would smell like baseball cards. I just don't know if people, significant others, could keep their hands off each other if we all smelled like a pack of 86 Fleer. Like, could you imagine like a seductive commercial and... You might have a French man with a six-pack of abs running on the beach. He's got blonde hair flowing in the wind. Maybe he just did push-ups. And then at the end of the commercial, 86 Fleer, cologne for men. Greatest show on dirt. And that's it. That's it. Such fancy, fancy cologne. And 86 Fleer is sort of like the middle-class everyday cologne, sort of like CK1, right? You could wear it to the skating rink, but you could wear it on your paper route. But also... I could have like 1991 upper deck for men. You know what I mean? And that would be for a really, really fancy dinner. Like you want to take your girl to Applebee's, get a well-done steak, and maybe some half-price appetizers. You know what I'm saying, man? Take your girl maybe to like the Golden Corral. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, exactly. Or if you were like going to a party, let's say like you were going to go to a bonfire where there might be flamethrowers and firecrackers. And, you know, just a, a lot, a lot of shenanigans, maybe a strip pit and, you know, just all kinds of weird stuff. And you could maybe wear like 82 Don Russ, right? Because that's definitely a musty, dingy scent, which sort of like Sex Panther, you know what I mean? Where people will smell you and then they'll throw up, but they'll be like, you smell good, but you smell really bad. It would be so funny. Like my, like I envision it just like this. You might smell like a pack at 83 tops and you got a potato gun in the backyard with 20 cans of Aquanet and a hundred potatoes. That's, that is the aura. If you smell like an 83 tops baseball card, you know what I mean? But then again, fanciness, upper deck, stadium club, there's a scent for everybody out there. It will come in a spritz. It would maybe come in a body spray like Axe. And I'm telling you, like, it would be dangerous out there, you know, because I think the human population would go up. And also, my podcast would take off completely. And to be honest with you, I don't want to be that big. I got a family here at the house, right? I can't be like, you know, some globetrotter doing all this stuff, right? I got to keep it modest. But this pack of 86 Fleer, I opened up. Absolutely loved it. The first card out of the 86 Fleer was a Don Sutton card. And Don Sutton has, like, a gray afro popping out of his hat. And I look at this picture and I'm like, 
how is this 80-year-old playing baseball still? Like, just look at if you if you open up a pack of baseball cards from the 80s, all of the players look 55. All of the players look like they need an extra eye exam before they can renew their driver's license. Don Sutton looks like he was the co-captain on Noah's Ark. How old is this guy, man? Holy crap. He takes up 14 grandkids and needs Geritol on a daily basis. It is so crazy. But then, like, the fifth or sixth card I pulled out of here was a Vince Coleman rookie card, right? Oh, no, 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 excuse me. Not a Vince Coleman rookie card, just a Vince Coleman card, because Vince Coleman was a rookie in 85, and this is a card from 86. So it's not a rookie, but it's a Vince Coleman card, dude. And he's got, like, the St. Louis Cardinals batting practice jersey on and the St. Louis Cardinals red hat on, and I'm not even a Cardinals fan. And I looked at this card, and it looks so damn good. It's got the big Cardinals logo on it in bright red. It's got Vince Coleman, and I looked at the card, and I was like, I'm gonna go buy a St. Louis Cardinals hat. Like, just all of these cards just look so rad because you see the old uniforms and the old look. Like, I pulled this Doug Sis card from the Mets, and he's got a gold chain and a big wad of chaw in his mouth. Like, he looks like he works for the mafia. Like, he might be with the Gambino crime family, and he's got a 530 ERA, so hopefully he can make it work for the crime family. But baseball players from the 80s look legit. I got this super special star card, or superstar special, where it's got Tom Seaver and Phil Negro. Both of them have three career wins. Now, Tom Seaver's a stud. He looks like he's in good shape in here. But this guy, Phil Negro, on this baseball card, looks like the bad guy on Poltergeist, too. He looks, he look, Phil Negro looks legit 80 years old. I'm not even joking. But that's what it was like in the 80s, right? Baseball players were just rugged, man. They had mustaches. They didn't cut their hair. And, you know, that's just, it, they were just working men, and that's how it was in the 80s. And I, I dig it, you know what I mean? Like, you can watch an 80s baseball game on YouTube, and they're lighting fireworks off in the stands, and nobody cares. You've got Morgana coming out of the stands, the kissing bandit, and choose to run on the field and kiss baseball players. Okay, if you do that now, it doesn't matter if you're a guy or a girl. They're going to taste the shit out of you and throw you in jail. Like, what? Side note. I would like to buy a taser because I live in South Carolina. I can order a taser off Amazon and they'll deliver it to me, which would be so awesome because then I would have a butterfly knife, a Zippo, and a taser. <laughs> Did I ever tell you guys about the flamethrower? I've mentioned it before how on Amazon you can order basically a flamethrower, which they call it like a crop burner. And basically what it is, it's like this, this backpack with like a wand that shoots fire out of it. And all you have to do is go to Kroger and get like a propane tank and strap it to your back. And that seems a little fucking dangerous to have just a full tank of propane on your back just shooting flames out. But then again, that's a day for the 82 Don Russ scent if you want to have fun like that. It's so rad. But do it. I'm telling you. Do it, do it, do it. And you know, I might do a giveaway soon too. Because it was about a month or two ago, I mailed off a few wax packs of baseball cards. But I'm telling you, I know the off season's coming up. But the holidays are coming up as well, like Christmas and stuff. And I just remember, you know, during Christmas, just getting baseball cards and loving it. And there's nothing more fun than sitting down in front of a TV or if you have to do it in front of a computer because you don't have like a Chromecast or something like that. Go to YouTube, pick an old baseball game to watch. And what you can do is you can go to YouTube and you could just search like 1991 Cubs and it might bring up like a 91 Cubs Pirates game with Steve Stone and Harry Carey on the call, Barry Bonds, Bobby Bonilla, Andy Van Slyke, 
and you just could end up seeing a good game and you owe it to yourself, take the time this week, find an old good baseball game on YouTube. And if you need a recommendation, DM me on Instagram. I think on Instagram, I'm greatest, uh, greatest show on dirt. Cause that's like your at symbol, right? I'm 37. I don't fully understand social media, but yeah, you could go to Instagram, greatest show on dirt. And DM me if you want to watch an old baseball game but don't really know how to search. I've watched a ton of old baseball games on YouTube. I can tell you good ones to watch. DM me if you want to, and I'll tell you a game to watch. And go to eBay, buy you a few wax packs, and watch the old game and open up old baseball cards. If you've got kids or a husband or a wife, do it with them too and just have fun with it because I think... My main goal in starting this podcast and what I want to do even more with the podcast is sort of bring people together through old school baseball, right? Because when we think about all the old times and we do have that nostalgic feeling of the time shared with others and how we can take how we felt then and really look at the joy we had then and apply it to our current situation. That's what I want to do with the podcast, right? I don't want to have this podcast that lives in the past. I want to acknowledge the past and how fun it was in the past and how good those players are and how we felt riding to baseball practice with our dad or our mom or whoever and be able to apply that today and share it with the people that we're around today so this week just do it buy us some baseball cards watch an old game on tv and just have some fun with it it will be a blast you won't regret it all right that's it that's it no more i'm done i'm done with this episode of the podcast i literally have nothing more to say listen if you made as I keep talking, <laughs> I still have more to say. This is bad. Listen, if you've made it this far, I thank you for listening to the podcast. My Instagram now has like 10,000 followers. I don't know how that happened. I My mom calls me and she says, how are all these people following you? Do they not know who you are or do they think they're in a weird cult? And I told her, I said, no, I don't know what's happening. But if you follow me, thanks. If you don't follow me, and you want more of the shenanigans, you can find me on Instagram. That's Greatest Show on Dirt on Instagram. And then Facebook, just search Greatest Show on Dirt. And if you want to go to Twitter, search um, Greatest on Dirt. That's my Twitter handle. Yes, yes. But if you follow me, I can't thank you enough. I don't know how it happened, <laughs> but um, there are a lot of folks that have messaged, you know, slid into my DMs. And I, I think actually you're not supposed to say it like that. I think that means a sexual advance. No one's given me any sexual advances, but people are leaving me messages and they're saying they like the podcast. And I thank you so much because all I want to do with this podcast is to create a community where people can look at baseball like in a nostalgic way, have some fun, get some information. That's all I want. So thank you so much for doing that. Find me on social media. There's some good stuff on there. And otherwise, oh, if I've got like... um like maybe 40 stickers left so if you want a sticker just dm me on twitter or instagram or even facebook and i'll mail you out a couple of stickers i've got some stamps and i've got some envelopes and i got some stickers i'm happy to mail them out for you because i don't need all these stickers you can only put so many stickers on your car before people think that i don't know like you're homeless or something like that <laughs> yeah i don't know what stickers actually has to do with being I haven't had a haircut in a while. I got a huge mustache, so I look homeless or look creepy. But either way, that's um, that's it. I'm done. That's uh, thank you. I'll see you guys next time. Take care.